this episode of MD Talk. I'm LaQuinta Jernigan with MD Group. And today we have a special episode that is really focused on the patient journey. As we all know, patients are critical to clinical research, but often we don't hear their side of the story. We don't understand fully what it's like to go through a clinical trial as a patient. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest um, to MD Talk, Eric South. Eric is the founder of a nonprofit called The Gladiator Project. The Gladiator Project connects families who are impacted by brain cancer to find support to fight the disease and carry on with their journey. But they also help fund research to find a cure. Welcome, Eric. Hi, LaQuinta. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being with us. I'm so excited to discuss your journey and to learn about your diagnosis and how you got involved with clinical research and also how you came to fund um, or found the Gladiator Project. Um, we all know how critical patients are to clinical research and a lot of emphasis within the pharmaceutical industry of late has been focused on finding patient centricity. But we also know that patient retention continues to be such a huge issue for clinical research. There are over 30% of clinical trials, I think, that are conducted, they fail to retain all of their patients, which is a problem because it means that you can't reach the data points that you need to bring that therapy or that drug to market in an efficient way. Um, but we also know that a lot of patients are dropping out because of lots of reasons due to travel, logistics, Sometimes sites are very hard to get to for patients. There's also the considerations of family. Um, do they have children to care for? Or do they have jobs that require them to be there and they can't really take the time off to, to attend visits? But then there's also that finan financial component. And I think that many people are naive to assume that you know when you're participating in clinical research that there is no financial burden, but there, there are lots of um, financial components involved from booking plane tickets to finding accommodations. So these are all the things that kind of aid to that patient retention problem. So with you today, Eric, I'm really looking forward to talking about a firsthand experience as a patient. What is it like to participate in a clinical trial? What are some of the, the, challenge, the challenges that you encountered? And then what can we learn as an industry to remove those challenges from future participants and make this truly a patient-centric way of conducting research? So let's, let's jump right in, Eric. Can you please talk us through your story? Yeah, thanks, LaQuinta. Um, so uh, in February of this year, I was uh, diagnosed with glioblastoma multiform, um, which is, is a stage four brain cancer that there is no cure. Um, I had a, a, a surgery to, with a gross total resection in, on February 16th, um, and then we jumped in to the battle of figuring out what do we do next. Um, you talk about clinical trials, you talk about the patient-centric. I think there's, there's a lot of really good things going on out there in, in the industry, but the number one challenge to start is figuring out, okay, the standard of care, which has been in place for 15 years for GBM, um, it has been unchanged for 15 years. Uh, so for me, number one, okay, what else can we do? Where, are there any clinical trials? What can we find out there um, that could give me a better chance, chance than the 12 to 18 month diagnosis to live that they give for GBM? 
Um, so the initial battle for me and my wife was, okay, what's out there? What other options do we have other than the standard of care um, to battle this? Um, and it's a major challenge. Finding um, clinical trials is not easy. You know, they have websites like clinicaltrials.gov, right. but reading that as a non-medical, as, as a non-doctor, um, it's nearly indecipherable. Um, we were fortunate enough to have somebody in our family who's a, an, an oncologist, a pediatric oncologist, that helped us navigate some of that. Um, but without her, we really would have been lost. Um, so number one, identifying and finding a clinical trial. Number two, being lucky enough to have the right diagnosis to get in the trial. Um, three, having the timing be right to get into it. Um, and then four, having a connection and a referral. So I was referred to this clinical trial and without that referral, I highly doubt that we would have found one. My story starts with the diagnosis. I, I have a successful surgery, I'm going strong, and, and then we, we get into this battle of clinical trials. So the approach that my wife and I took, um, I, I come from a business background, sales, and um, I've always been aggressive with my career. So our approach was to interview as many oncologists as possible. I don't think this is a normal approach that most people would take, but that's what we did. So we interviewed doctors at MD Anderson. We interviewed doctors at Sloan Kettering. We interviewed doctors at Duke, um, Lenox Hill, Vanderbilt, um, Sarah Cannon, you know, all the reputable organizations and doctors, we interviewed them to find um, who we thought gave us the best chance, number one, and then two, you know, did they have a trial that we could get into? Um, so just the bandwidth and energy for my wife and I, who just came off of this diagnosis, um, I was right out of brain surgery, so I was not at 100%. My wife was tending to our two children and s still working and trying to battle, um, handle everything. Uh, it was overwhelming. Now, fortunately, we have um, a tremendous support group of family and friends that were able to help us get through a lot of these challenges. Um, but, you know, you have a window of time, three to five weeks to make a decision on what you're going to do because the standard, you know, the treatments need to start soon once right. this type of diagnosis happens. So um, that's kind of the beginning part of the journey uh, about us getting in, you know, of my story of, of the surgery. We had an amazing neurosurgeon that was able to remove 99.99% of the tumor. Um, you know, and who, who helped motivate me um, to be positive going into this. And it was really, to tease a little bit, start, starting of the foundation of the Gladiator Project because, you know, he talked to me about the, the you know, I, was, I asked him, what can I do? What can I do myself to help battle this? You know, what can I control? Because there's a lot of things you can't control. And he says, you know, have superfoods, you know, we all have heard superfoods, brain foods, blueberries, MCT oil, you know, all the leafy greens, and he talked about the Gladiator smoothie um, from Smoothie King, and that kind of, and this is before my surgery, and it started getting me on this path to controlling the things you can control, um, 
And it's been kind of our mantra ever since is just fighting like gladiators. I love it. I mean, that's it's such a, a remarkable story because when you think about all that you and your wife and your family were going through from the point of diagnosis, and then you think about all of the research and the work and the legwork you put into finding that next step, which was a clinical trial, what type of discussions did you have as a family about whether you wanted to participate in a clinical trial? What were some of your driving points to push you towards enrolling and, and seeking those um, sites to en enroll with? You know, the option was basically, do we, can, can we get into a clinical trial, first of all? And then if we do, um, do we want to, do I want to live somewhere else for six weeks, which is what I ended up doing, away from my family, or should we just go with the standard of care and stay home and, and go with the treatment that has been the same for 15 years and really has been proven not to work? Um, so the discussions were really, you know, is it worth it for, for us to take a risk on a clinical trial um, that is also unproven and me moving away for two or three months away from the family or should we just stay home and be comfortable? And I think, you know, if you knew, know me or my wife at all, it was a pretty easy decision. We're going to battle this thing to the fullest. Um, so it didn't take us long to decide we're going to go for it. And that's when we started the process of uh, interviewing um, neuro-oncologists all across the country. Right. And when we talk about standard of care, you were able to learn a little bit more about what the standard of care was for your diagnosis based on your connection with your, your family member that was a pediatric oncologist, correct? That is right. Um, we learned about that with our, from, from uh, it's my wife's cousin. Mm -hmm. She's a pediatric oncologist in Texas and also from our, our um, neuro-oncologist in Nashville who, who basically told us this is the only treatment option that we are offering for you at this time. Um, and that was it. And do you think that, you know, I think when we, we talk about, you know, other patients that might be going through something similar, how easy is it for you to, to, to find out on your own what the standard of care might be for your diagnosis compared to what a clinical trial could offer. Do you feel like that information is readily available out there uh, for people to be able to easily find, or is it pretty difficult to, to kind of go through all of that? It's a great, great question. Finding resources and materials for a diagnosis that you are not familiar with whatsoever, which I would assume most people who are diagnosed with this, um, with this disease are, is extremely difficult. Um, if we hadn't had a family member to point us in the right direction, we would not have found the clinical trial that I participated in. I, n I know we wouldn't have. Wow. And I think that's key because, you know, patient enrollment, recruitment, retention is absolutely paramount to research, to finding new treatments and new therapies. And so, you know, we really need to examine from an industry, like, what can we do to make it easier for patients to understand and know what their options are for clinical research? And I think that, you know, right now we're sitting in a unique space coming out of this COVID-19 pandemic where more of the world is aware of clinical research than they ever were before because of the vaccine trials. So, you know, talking to you, Eric, obviously, like, there, I'm hopeful that we can build on that momentum so that it is more, there is more out there 
for all other types of indications, not just COVID, for patients to be able to see what is available to them, what the benefits of clinical research, research are versus standard care. Um, so back to your story though. So we've gotten to this point where you and your wife, you've interviewed all of these different institutions and oncologists. You've made the decision that you're gonna fight this. You're gonna be a gladiator and you're gonna enroll in a clinical trial. What was that like to, to when you, you made that decision to then go forth, enroll, and relocate yourself? Can you walk us through kind of that, that stage of your, your journey? Yeah. Um, you know, once we made the decision to en enroll in the clinical trial with MD Anderson in Houston, Texas, um, we had to immediately go into action. Okay, I had the uh, requirement was that I be on site in Houston for six weeks consecutively every day. Um, so number one, where do we stay? Um, you know, the market isn't great to even find places to, to live in most cities in the United States. So um, we immediate, immediately started doing research on, you know, extended stay hotels, apartments, and, you know, we were very fortunate to, to reach out to uh, a, um, a church organization in, in Texas that actually helped support people that came in. And I mean, it was um, a last minute lucky find that we were able to get an apartment for me to stay in for those six weeks. It was lucky, it really was. Um, I mean, we could have stayed in a, ho in a hotel, but you know, that's gonna be $1,000 a week. Um, and you know, fortunately, we, we were able to find a place to stay, number one. And then you start looking into the logistics with your my family and, and who's going to visit and you know how are the treatments going to affect me right can I be on my own and you know I wasn't authorized to drive at the time um, you know is there public transportation you know can I walk are we close enough that I could walk to the facility can I even walk after I do chemo and radiation you know there's all these questions swirling in your mind so it is a whirlwind and it was a, a big challenge for us um, I feel like with our, um, the way that my wife and I, her name is Leslie, the way that we approach everything is to be aggressive and assertive and attack things with a positive mindset. And I think we did that and we're fortunate to find um, a place to stay that was close enough to, for me to be able to participate. And you were left to do all of that on your own. So you had to figure out the logistics. Do I need a caregiver? How am I going to get there? Let me book travel. Let me find a you know, find and pay for a lodging, all of, all of those ins and outs you were left to do on your own. Yeah, any logistics, and logistics that's involved with a, a clinical trial, as far as my experience are concerned, um, are 100% on the responsibility of the patient to coordinate those. There, there are resources at different facilities to say, hey, you can reach out here, and they'll point you in directions, but you have to, be, you're responsible for everything, paying mm -hmm. for it, um, coordinating it, setting it up. So let's just recap here. So you, you, you find out that you have, you have brain cancer, you have a rare brain cancer. You're grappling with how that's going to change your life forever. You have to then research what to do next. Talk to family members. Okay, now I wanna go into clinical trial. All while you're, you're recovering from brain surgery, you have two kids, you have a wife with a full-time job. 
and now you're expected to, now that you've enrolled in a clinical trial, great, now you're expected, okay, figure it all out, Eric. Now, how are you gonna get here? How are you gonna take care of yourself for six weeks? You know, figure all this out. That is a lot to deal with. That's a lot for anyone to deal with. Um, and it's very overwhelming. How, what was the impact of, you know, navigating those six weeks um, in Houston, you know, to, with Leslie, your wife, and your, and your kids? I mean, how, how did that, how did you have to kind of re-shift your life um, from a family standpoint? Yeah, it, it's challenging. You know, we had a very busy, active life. Two boys, they're six and nine, um, lots of after-school activities and things going on. Um, you know, sports and school and everything else. So um, our family was a big part of that, coming uh, to stay with us and helping with the kids when I was going. Um, you know, it, it was tough because, you know, when you have young children, the last thing you want them to do is worry about what's going on with one of their parents. Right. Um, so, like, the, the, the gladiator face has always been the... the the focus for me with them especially to let them know that um, I'm doing okay, things are going all right, you know, th this is something they don't need to worry about. So I was very fortunate to have family and friends jump in and help, um, you know, care for our kids, watch our kids. When Leslie would come down, they did get to come down and visit once when I was in Houston. Um, the baseball team that they're on, I actually was able to do um, they set up a live streaming video of the baseball games so I could watch them from Houston and then could talk to my boys afterwards and tell them how great of a job they did. So, you know, I had a support system that was tremendous. I know everybody doesn't have that. And it was still extremely difficult mm -hmm. to navigate. So once you were um, enrolled and you were in Houston, the, those six weeks, what was that experience like, the active participation of the, the clinical trials away from your home in mm -hmm. Houston? Well, the, the, the treatments themselves are rigorous. You know, the trial that I was involved in was um, the, the chemotherapy was the trial portion of this clinical trial. Mm -hmm. um, so I was going through daily radiation treatments, um, which is not an easy yeah. experience for anybody. Um, so, you know, physically it was challenging um, to go through that. Now I had people with me at least half of the time as we didn't know how things were going to you know, progress or how um, I would handle the treatments. Um, physically exhausting. The fatigue, um, you know, the, the just, con you know, you have to go on site every day. So our treat yeah. my treatments were every day in the hospital for at least two or three hours, you know, I was stuck with needles at least 150, 200 times in, in a six week period. Um, daily radiation treatments directly to your brain um, and then taking the chemotherapy as well. So physically exhausting. Um, I think that will be the same for most people. Mm -hmm. um, emotion, emotionally, um, draining as well and I think that's really where the the charity and the gladiator project helped keep me positive when I started to think you know I, I wrote down everything so I documented everything throughout my journey from surgery I was laying in my hospital bed and I'll talk more about this later but 
you know, I've documented everything from day one to share with the world or anybody who's going through what I'm going through, what works and what doesn't, um, the challenges, the obstacles, the opportunities. Um, I think emotionally for me, thinking about helping other people really helped me get through it. Because if you, it's, you, you know, I'm, I've never been, uh, you know, I don't want a pity party. I'm not here for a pity party. I, I want to help other people. And, and I think that approach helped me emotionally to start founding the Gladiator Project, um, to know that I can create some good and help others who will be going through what, I, what I'm going through at the same time. Yeah, and you know, one of, another common reason that patients are hesitant to participate in clinical research or end up dropping off is that fear of the unknown. You know, it's, I don't know what to expect. I don't know what, you know, treatments will bring. I don't know what, what's expected of me. So having a support group where you can just hear others' experience, you know, with being in a clinical trial can help so much. And, and also, you know, like you mentioned before, there's so much not in your control. And sometimes that can be the hesitation too with the clinical trial because you don't feel like you have control over the schedule of events, what you, you know, what you can and cannot do. So, you know, having some insight into that, that world is key. It could be the reason someone decides to participate. So it's great that, you know, you were able to use that struggle at the time to create something so remarkable and positive such as the Gladiator Project because it will help countless other individuals and families. At any point, Eric, did you consider dropping out of the trial? Or have you considered dropping out? No, that's a great question. Um, Honestly, I could say that I have not considered dropping out of the clinical trial that I'm in. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't challenges with it. Mm -hmm. um, I, am, I, I just had an MRI a week and a half ago and it was clear. So for me, there would be no reason for me to even consider backing out. I mean, my doctor is amazing. Um, the nurses are angels and heroes, um, and they do great work. But I will say this, um, if I weren't texting with my research nurse on a daily basis and reminding of schedules and asking questions and constantly being involved with my care, I don't think I would even have been compliant with the protocol of the trial. You know, there, there's a lack of funding in these clinical trials and a lack of people to handle the coordination. So I've had to coordinate a lot of things. I'm still involved in the trial now and I can do it remotely with a visit once a month. And I'm scheduling my, my uh, lab work to go do blood draws. And I'm, I'm scheduling all of that for the trial and taking care of it here and reminding them, hey, is today the day I need to go get a, a blood work drawn? or and, and not to say anything negative about uh, my people at MD Anderson because I feel like they've saved my life and I love them to death. But I'm highly involved with my care daily. Text messages, phone calls, emails. Hey, what about this? Hey, I had this symptom, check in. You know, what about this? The Medicaid, you know, whatever it may be. I need a refill. You know, I'm the one that's being responsible for doing that. And I don't know that everybody can handle that. No. And, you know, MD Anderson's a great site, but sites need help. 
You know, they are running clinical trials. They're also taking care of their, their standard care patients. They need that support there. And this is why I'm so glad that we're talking because as an industry, clinical research has used this term patient centricity. And it's empty words if we don't actually reform things to fix some of the challenges that you encountered. Eric, you were able to muster up the, the strength, the time, the resource to do all of these very taxing and challenging tasks for your care to participate in this clinical trial. The truth is not everyone can do that. And we have a responsibility as an industry to make sure that funding is there, to make sure that resources are there so that patients aren't trying to juggle with being critically ill and trying to participate in clinical research. There are so many options available to ensure that patient centricity are not just empty words and that it's a way of life that this industry embraces. And so it's one of my passions and I am really excited that you're here talking about this today because it is absolutely critical that we reform the way things are done now. If we want patient uh, or clinical trials to be a public health initiative where everyone knows about them and they know how to participate, we also need to make sure that patients have the support and the care that they need to participate in clinical trials and that sites have the support and resources available to participate in clinical trials. And so I'm hoping that you know part of our discussion really falls on ears out there to, to realize just how important this is. So for you, Eric, what's next in your treatment um, and in this clinical trial? And I know you mentioned that you're able to do once a month visits. Um, how long of a trial are you, is it, how long are you committed to participating? Yeah, the trial actually goes through this December. Okay. So the, the trial will be complete at that time. Um, I would say, and I'm gonna continue my care through MD Anderson with my same doctor, um, mainly because their standard of care for um, visits and MRIs is every two months. Whereas the standard of care for the industry is an MRI once every six months. Wow. And that scares me. Yeah. Like that worries me for, for other people that they have to wait six months before they can go get a checkup. And that's not right. I, I guarantee that every single one of those people, or at least I would think, would want to have more regular checkups on, on how things are progressing or not progressing inside of their head. And you know, that was one of the blessings for me in this trial is the regularity of um, the MRIs and the regularity of the checkups and, and, and how involved they were in, in showing my scans and talking to me about those things. Um, so I will remain with MD Anderson at the end of December. Um, right now I'm on um, chemotherapy and it's a 28-day cycle. Um, and I have one more cycle in December, and then we'll decide what we do from there. So things are going well. I had a clear MRI. I'll have another one in, in December, um, and we're going to keep fighting the good fight. That's amazing. That is amazing. And now tell me what's next for the Gladiator Project. Yeah, so the, the Gladiator Project, and I, and I wanted to kind of go back to the beginning of the Gladiator Project because I think it's it's important to 
know, know how this came about. I was telling you about my neurosurgeon mm -hmm. who was telling me about the, the superfood um, gladiator smoothie. And, you know, I was laying in my bed the day of my surgery in the neuro ICU. And I decided, and I had clarity. So prior to the, the surgery, um, you know, the right side of my brain was pushed over to the left hemisphere. And it's a haze. I have like a week and a half of a haze of not really remembering. And I woke up and had clarity in the neuro ICU where I said the nurses are angels um, and heroes. And I woke up and I, there's two things I wanted to do. Well, I wanted a Chick-fil-A like chicken sandwich. But other than that, um, there was two things I wanted to do. I love golf. I love sport. I wanted to shoot around the golf in the 70s, which I've never done and haven't yet, but I'm working towards it. And number two, I wanted to start a charity and it was going to be called the Gladiator Project. Um, and the entire purpose was to help people who have GBM to fight this battle. Because I felt like I came out of that feeling so good. I don't know why or how or I don't know what caused it. I've never started a charity. I don't know my own business. I've never done anything like that before. But I knew that was my mission at that point. Um, so to answer you what's next, um, you know, we, so Team Gladiator, um, which is all the donors for the Gladiator Project, have, have um, we've had an outpouring of um, donors and sponsors and individuals and companies support the Gladiator Project. We've raised nearly $100,000 in just a few months to go towards helping patients and funding research. Um, we've got our flagship charity event um, on November 8th in Nashville. It's a charity, it's the Gladiator Project Fall Classic. Um, and we have a, a huge outpouring of um, teams and sponsors and media that, that are gonna be in attendance. We got some celebrities playing in the event. Um, Right now we're in the awareness and fundraising phase of Gladiator Project. For, so for anybody who's interested in supporting or learning more or finding the resources that we put out there for patients, our website is gladiatorproject.org. Um, and I would highly recommend you visit to see the upcoming events and what we've done so far. Uh, I've, I've uh, brought on a board of directors of people that are way smarter than me that have helped us put together um, an organization that's set up to actually make a difference and help people. And while we're in the, the, the fundraising portion of our you know, organization, we can see great things on the horizon on how we're gonna directly impact patients um, and directly impact research. Um, we wanna help others, I wanna help myself, you know, and we wanna find a cure for GBM. That is amazing. I mean, I want to be a gladiator myself. I mean, it just I love organizations who have the mission that you have because families can feel so isolated and alone when they're going through this. And having that support system there is just, it's very important. It's very, very important. So I'm hoping that some of you out there will go and visit the website, see how you can get involved and learn more about the Gladiator Project. To wrap things up, we all know that clinical research is important. It, it drives finding cures for diseases. 
it can save lives and, and improve outcomes for people. And it's so important that we have awareness of clinical research, that we have accessibility of clinical research, but it's also very important that we remember the patients who are key to finding these cures and ensuring that they have the resources and the support that they need to participate. And that our sites, who are very overwhelmed right now, have those important resources. I hope that people who are listening to this episode can understand just how important that resource is and can go back and advocate for it. Advocate for patients to have this type of support and advocate for sites as well. Thank you so much, Eric, for being with us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. I am looking forward to watching and following and supporting the Gladiator Project to see all the wonderful things that it's going to do for our research and for families. Thank you so much, LaQuinta. And thank you all for listening um, to this episode of MD Talk. To learn more about MD Group, you can visit us at mdgroup.com, follow us on Twitter, on LinkedIn, or our YouTube page. To learn more about the Gladiator Project, you can go to thegladiatorproject.org um, and find out more, and also on LinkedIn, correct? LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. Awesome. And just because we're living in these very odd times, we have taken the utmost safety with our um, episode today, um, having a fully vaccinated staff and um, negative COVID test prior to. It's always important that we are following safety protocols and we are very serious about that here at MD Talk. Until next time, everyone, be safe. Thank you.